Um, but uh, I think everybody here can remember the 90s, uh, not that long ago. It feels like a long time ago to me. It was, it was my, my earliest years. Uh, but I think most of you can remember one of the biggest trends that swept over the church world uh, was, uh, was those wristbands that said WWJD, which, of course, was on T-shirts and billboards and all kind of campaigns. Uh, and the premise of those wristbands and of that abbreviation uh, was before you do anything, Ask yourself a simple question, what would Jesus do? I, I was pretty young during this fad. I mean, really, it was the late 90s, I think, when it was a big deal, and I saw people wearing them, and, and I think people wore them and didn't really know what they meant and really consider what it was asking them to do. But it was a big thing, right? And that was a good thing. It got people's mind on Jesus, nothing wrong with that. Uh, always a good thing that can come out of that. But I, I think it was just kind of the fashionable thing to do, if you will, in the church world. Um, so, But I never really found myself in crucial moments in life being so young where I really asked that question in a serious way. Way to make a decision. But the idea is, is, is a good idea, and it comes from a good place. But I'm sure a lot of people were reminded by those wristbands and other signs uh, and, and point, important points and moments in their life uh, to pause and consider, what would Jesus do if he were in my shoes, if he were in my situation that I'm facing? Now, when I was younger, I, I naively thought, you know, that perhaps it'd be hard to know what Jesus might would do in any given situation. But as I've gotten older, and most importantly, more studied of the word, um, I've realized it's really not hard to imagine at all that Jesus would know what to do in our shoes. Um, and, 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 and just in general, we don't have to really wonder what would Jesus do, because we know exactly what Jesus would do. We don't have to ask ourselves the question, I, you know, I wonder what Jesus would do in this instant, because the Bible tells us exactly what Jesus did on any given, in any given situation in a various, uh, you know, area, various areas of life. We have four different accounts, detailed accounts of Jesus' ministry, of his life, uh, telling us what Jesus did. So we don't have to ask the question, I wonder what Jesus would do right now or right here in this situation, because the Bible tells us exactly what Jesus did, which is a pretty unique thing that we have when it comes to knowing uh, about Jesus. Now, just to cut right to it, this is the notion, this, this notion is the inspiration behind this message tonight, really pulling from a passage where we see Jesus at work and Jesus on mission. We often think about Jesus in the Bible uh, preaching, and he's usually in front of big crowds preaching. We, we often think about him doing miracles, but there's a few passages in the Bible and a few areas of the Gospels where we kind of see Jesus kind of moving from one place to another, but there's a trend, there's a through line through it, and, and there, there's, a, there's, a, there's dots you can connect, and it's not just a sermon, it's not just a miracle, but there's some things that he says here that connects to here, that connects to there, and, and this is one of those passages where we see Jesus on work, on mission, and on location, and, and, and really specific and powerful in important ways. So we're going to look at Matthew 8, verse 18 through 34, which is the back half of a chapter where we see Jesus in three unique situations. We get to see him in different scenarios. We see him in controlled environments where everything's normal, everything's going as it should be. Then we see him in very unconventional environments, very unexpected situations or unknown situations. And I think this snapshot of his ministry is especially insightful and helpful to study. I, I like this scripture for that very reason. You get to see Jesus in all the many lanes of life. Uh, we often think of Jesus, you know, as a preacher or as a, as a minister who was always kind of in these very safe environments, very controlled situations. But Jesus didn't stay behind a pulpit. He didn't just stay on, on a stage in front of people. He wasn't always just on a hill with everybody below him. He was in the avenues of life. He was in the ups and downs. He was in the flow. You'll find him in many different environments throughout his ministry. And this is an example of that. And 
these are examples of that. And, and we'll still even see him in places that you might not expect him to ever have been. So I thought we could just go through these three different small passages and pull out some helpful truths uh, along the way concerning what Jesus did and why we should do likewise. So that's the whole goal of this message. What did Jesus do and why should we do likewise? So first up is Matthew 8, 18 through 22. When Jesus saw the great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side of the lake. Then a certain scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. As if to say, Are you sure you want to follow me where I'm going? Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Which sounds a very odd request, but it also sounds very sincere. We, we don't really know the details there. But Jesus, perhaps harshly, responds, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, I'm very, very acquainted with this passage. Uh, my first big uh, research paper in, in, in college, too long, so it doesn't feel like that long ago, but almost half my lifetime ago at this point, um, was on this tiny passage of Scripture. To nobody's surprise, I wrote 15 pages on five verses. How could you imagine somebody going on and on about a few verses? I, I don't do that every week, do I? But seriously, this passage is so renowned because it details both the reality of following Jesus and it assumes or alludes to the reward of following Jesus. And that's one of your points tonight. I hope that you can maybe uh, make a note around this, these five verses. This passage makes it very clear what it means to follow Jesus, the reality of following Jesus, the cost of following Jesus. But it also, I think there's an underlying illusion. You might not see it on the surface. But under all these words, there's this pointing to the reward that comes from following Jesus. Jesus does not mince his words in this passage. He makes it very clear that there is a cost to following him. The sacred opportunity that has been offered to us is in belonging to his movement and being part of his ministry. It's a very serious thing. And I can't help but think that the seriousness with which Jesus addresses the matter is meant to draw us in and cause us to wonder what might be in store for those that make this great sacrifice. Again, he doesn't make, he doesn't say it lightly. He says very bluntly, if you want to follow me, you better be willing to in, enter some discomfort, to go through some sacrifice sacrifices to make some tough decisions but I think the, I think the underlying message there is if Jesus is asking us to do something that is so radical and so you know uh, difficult there must be something amazing on the other side again he, he, pre he prefaces this message with let us go to the other side but we don't know what's on the other side we don't know where God is leading us but you have to imagine if he's saying to this man hey you better follow me before you take care of your family affairs or if he's saying to this man you you should follow me but just know you might not have a place to lay your head sometimes it's still worth it don't, don't you get that 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 kind of that that tease there that invitation in this passage yes this passage is very very clear it's going to cost us something but we also get this idea that there must be some reward. There must be some great reward or value to doing this. Jesus, of course, makes it known, makes it known, and he puts his money where his mouth is. 
When he says, follow me, and, and, and this guy says, I'll follow you wherever, Jesus doesn't, doesn't live above, uh, above his disciples. Jesus isn't asking us to do something that he isn't also doing. He puts his money where his mouth is, uh, as, as it would always be. He always does that. But in this one, it carries a lot of weight. I tell you, I don't see, I don't, I don't think there's any passage in the Bible that impacts how I conduct myself in ministry and should impact how we conduct ourselves in ministry and how we exemplify what it means to follow God and live for him and, and most importantly represent him than maybe this one. Jesus is saying to us, hey, I don't have a place to lay my head at night. Uh, this isn't a luxurious walk. This isn't something where I'm on an easy street. A couple of years ago, there was a prominent megachurch pastor that was asked if Jesus would uh, live such a high life as many of as he and many of his colleagues do. Uh, you know, and, and, and those those the, the man that was talking, you know, claimed that hey, if you really are a blessed person, then you you would be living like me, and you would be on such a high and lofty place as me. Uh, but clearly, that's not the life that Jesus is exemplifying, right? Clearly, that's not what Jesus is saying that we'll experience, but more importantly, that's not the life that he was living, and that's not the road that he was walking. I, I remember being just 19 and spending weeks reading this passage inside and out, reading commentaries and dwelling on the words of Jesus. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man does not have anywhere to lay his head. That doesn't sound like jet-flying, Armani-wearing, mansion-living, right? Does it? It doesn't sound like that. It sounds like a man that was willing to give up everything because there was something greater to be gained at the end. He wasn't making them feel bad for having beds to rest on at night, but he was certainly making them wonder. Wonder if they truly valued the call of discipleship and had their priorities in line with God's kingdom. I mean, just think about this. Jesus, by all means, could have taken advantage of the luxuries of this world. He, 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 but he laid all those things down to show us that true blessing, true fulfillment is found in serving God, detached from any measure of materialism. This is not meant to discourage you. This is meant to enlighten us and make us say, wow, you mean that following Jesus is worth it even if it costs me? Even if it costs me everything? And here's the thing, most likely, following Jesus won't cost you everything, but it will, it will, it will cost you something. Jesus says to this man, you want to follow me anywhere? I know your heart. I see the conflict, and that's, that's normal. That's what we all deal with. He says, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. As in, I don't have a home. I don't have the luxuries that most people do. As Jesus put it in several places, it will feel like giving up the smallest. It feels like sometimes when you give up the smallest something for God that it's actually costing you your actual life. Jesus compared and correlated finding true life in him to losing our life. Remember how Jesus said that on four different occasions in all four Gospels? That to truly, uh, to, to, to find life, you have to lose your life. To gain the kingdom, you have to lose the world. His commands to this person in verse 22 are very harsh, and they're maybe even heartless. Let the dead bury their dead. And again, people will speculate, what does he mean? Did this guy really had his father died? Was his father old? Was he just wanting to make sure that he got to live his last days? I, we don't know, and there's really no reason to speculate. Jesus says what he says. Jesus says, and here's, here's, the, here's what Jesus says. You shouldn't wait to follow me for anything. 
I don't think that really needs that big of an explanation, does it? We don't really have to d study, did the guy, was the, guy die, was the guy's dad dying? Had he just died? Was he going to? We don't know. It doesn't really matter. Jesus says to this guy, listen, I don't really know what you're dealing with at home. And of course, Jesus could read his mind. Jesus knew. Jesus is saying, nothing is more important than following me. Nothing. And I know that sounds extreme and radical, and, and, and you think, well, there's got to be some asterisks on that. There's got to be some but, or maybe, if, or if this is your situation. Jesus doesn't do that. And I think the point of that is, Jesus is saying to us, don't underestimate. Don't undervalue the opportunity that God has given you. I know, you know, I'm sure people sometimes, when, and, and it's not me, but when we read these passages in the Bible, people might wonder, Justin, are you being a little bit too crazy or extreme? I don't think anybody's going to get to heaven and regret giving up anything for God. I, I think the alternative, if we get to heaven and we lived it up on this earth and we gave up very little for God, I think that's the regret. Don't you? Because if we get to heaven and we gain the world, but we forfeited the opportunity to serve him, what does that mean for us eternity? It means we lose something incredible. But if you get to heaven and all of a sudden you realize that all the wealthy, all the successful, all the famous people, they left those things behind and they're standing there just beside you like no, like, just like you. And you gave up it all for God and they didn't do anything for God, yet at the end of the day, it's all level. It's all equal. But it really won't be equal in eternity, will it? Because eternally speaking, those that make these sacrifices, those that value and those that truly uh, put the, the, the great price on what it means to follow in Jesus, they're the ones. We're the ones that can have the, 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 the eternity that God promises all of us can have. Think about the Old Testament. This is really previewed in the story of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah has been called to go to Elisha and to anoint him as the protege or the next prophet of Israel. And the Bible says that Elijah threw his mantle on Elisha. And Elisha knew very well what Elijah was doing. But Elisha plays dumb. And maybe we do this with God sometimes where God lays it down in front of us what we should do. Uh, sometimes people come to me, and, 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 I, and I'm not being harsh, but people come to me and they say, what does this verse mean? And I'm like, I think you know what that verse means. In terms of, people say, well, J Justin, is the Bible telling me to do this? Or is it just saying that Peter was supposed to do this? Y'all know, you know what I'm talking about? Hey, is God saying that we should do this, or was this just something that God was telling the disciples to do? And my response is, what do you want it to say? What do you think it says? Because sometimes what we wanted to say and what it actually says is two different things. Elijah threw the mantle on Elisha, and Elisha pretends, he plays dumb. Oh, what does this mean? And, and, and he doesn't immediately follow Elijah, and he says, Elijah, I've got some stuff I've got to do. I've got to take care of some things. I'm busy. I've got all these oxen, and I've got all this thing going on. And Elijah says, well, hey, what is it to you? I, I, all I did was throw my mantle upon you. No big deal. That was the Old Testament equivalent of the Holy Spirit pouring himself out on a man. Elisha knew what that meant. But Elijah says, okay, you want to play dumb? I'll play dumb. I, no, no big deal. Just go on about your day. And then Elisha reacts and responds by literally sacrificing his oxen that he was preoccupied with. He sacrifices them to God. And you would say, Elisha, you didn't have to do that. You, you, all you had to do was maybe give one to God and keep the rest. I mean, Elisha says, no, 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 no. I'm not letting anything stand in between me and God. May it never be lost on us. May, it, may we never take for granted what we've been invited to. That's my job as a pastor. My job as a pastor is to, is to, number one, hold myself accountable, but also invite you all from the Word of God 
may we never take for granted what we've been invited to be a part of. You don't have to take it. You don't have to go the extra mile. You don't have to go as far as Jesus did and as many others did. And, 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 and that doesn't mean you're not going to go to heaven when you die. You can be a believer and stay back on the sidelines and have a safe and easy life. You know, God can be the judge. But I don't want you to take for granted what God's invited you to be a part of. This isn't some flimsy membership. This isn't some club that we just pay our dues to and go about unbothered. This is discipleship. This is the kingdom of God. And we've been given entrance and access to things that are way, 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 way too holy and sacred for us. So when Jesus says, follow me, we should be like the man in verse 18. This is, I'll go wherever you want me to go. But Jesus knows our hearts. And if he prods us and he nudges us and he tries to make us deal with some of the, the, the doubts that we have. If he begins to make known to us that we haven't turned everything over to him. If he through his word begins to convict us that we might be holding back on him. May we not make excuses and dismiss it as something less than what it is. Because God has invited you to be a part of something that is eternally rewarding. If you got a phone call from somebody that you really idolize or somebody that you really value what they're doing and what they're involved in this world, and, and they invited you to be a part of their team in some way, shape, or form, you would jump at that opportunity, whether it was something recreationally that you're involved in, something politically you're interested in, something financially that could benefit you. All of us would jump in a minute for that stuff, wouldn't we? If it would somehow better us and better our families and, and, and help you know, our situation, we would all respond with, with glee and with urgency. Jesus has said to you and I, follow me. Why would we let anything hold us back? Jesus wants us to rightly value this opportunity and truly enjoy our participation. So let me ask you this, and this is uh, the eighth uh, slide uh, there at the bottom, middle of the bottom of the first page. These questions I want you to consider. Do you understand the privilege we have to get to be a Jesus follower? This is something that I think about every single day, that I should not be here. I should not get to be a Jesus follower. I, am disqualify, I, I disqualify myself in every category possible. I am not at all deserving this opportunity. I don't, I don't, I didn't deserve this. I don't earn this. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I didn't work my way here. I have been given this privilege because of the grace of God and because of the blood of Jesus. Do you understand the privilege that is getting to be a Jesus follower? And does knowing Jesus and seeing him work in your life motivate you above all other incentives? I get it. We all like incentives. We like these little promises here and there. And God is so good to us. God has blessed every one of us. We have all sorts of material things that God has given us. And those are great things. God gives them to us. But the incentive above all incentives is you get to know Jesus and you get to see him work in your life. That's the goal. That's the prize. That's the treasure. You know why I ask you these questions and, and why we really can't move past those questions into the rest of this if, if, we, if we don't wrestle with the tension? Because these next two passages, we never even make it that far in ministry. You never even make it that far in discipleship if you can't answer yes to both of these. Hey, listen, it's fine. If you don't answer yes and you never answer yes, that's your decision. But I just want to be honest with you. 
We'll never make it past verse 22 as God is leading us in discipleship. We'll never make it to the next steps of this walk of, of life, of following God. We'll never make it to the next step if we can't answer yes to those. So I just want to say to us, and just pause here, if your answers are no, be honest with God. And if your answers are no, and hey, you don't ever want to be, you don't want, you don't want more than what you have, hey, that's your decision. And God loves you, and God's gracious to you, and he'll save you when you die if you put your faith in Jesus. But I want you to know this, God is not going to stop asking you to take a next step. And if any preacher or any church or any devotion makes you feel comfortable in saying no to those, you need to find a better preacher and find a better church and find a better devotional because they're not wanting the best for you. It's a hard thing to ask those questions. It's even harder to, to answer them, honestly. But where God wants to take us, is worth, it's worth wrestling through this. So let's not be delusional and, and make excuses as to why we, why we uh, don't go farther. But, but it might sound blunt, and I, I know that's kind of blunt, and, and I try not to be blunt like that. But I think we need to be more blunt in the church because a lot of people, we've, we've sanded the edges of discipleship off. As a result, we've diluted the true blessings, and we've reduced them down to these cheap material incentives. And, and, and they don't do justice what it really means to know Jesus. They just don't. So next up. Let's read 23 through 27. I love this little passage. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the way, with, in the waves. Uh, and, but he was asleep. And Mark tells us he was asleep in the hinder parts of the boat, as in under the boat, under the water. The disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you, why are you fearful? Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he arose, and I love how Jesus is so nonchalant, so calm about this. He rebukes the waves, rebukes the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled. Who can this be? What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Again, let me say this. We never make it on the boat if we don't follow Jesus for the right reasons. You know who got on the boat with Jesus? I don't know everybody that got on the boat, but I know two people that didn't. You hear me? The guy that said, the guy that Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests and the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The guy that said, okay, I'm out. He didn't get on the boat. And the guy that said, hey, I got some things to do at home. I'm too busy with my family. That, that guy didn't get on the boat. Now you might think, I don't want to be on the boat because that doesn't sound like a good place to be. But there's also a blessing at the end of that story that is worth being on the boat for, Right? My point is, we never get on the boat if we can't say yes to following Jesus wherever he takes us and whatever it costs us. You, you might not want to be on this boat. And, and I also say this, you don't want to be on the boat if you're not following Jesus for the right reasons. Because if you're, if you're following Jesus for, the, for, the, for the, any other reason than the serious business of being a disciple, then you're going to be way out of your league on the boat. You're going to be panicking worse than they were. Jumping off the boat, trying to fend for yourself. When Jesus takes us into conditions and challenges environments that, 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 that are not what we are used to in this life, we got to be ready for that. And even the original disciples had, had trouble. Even they were on the edge of their faith. And they were mostly there for the right reasons. Now you read this story and again we think, well, I don't know why anybody would want to be on the boat in the middle of the storm. No, thank you. Can I be on the land in the safe, uh, the safe shore? 
But what do these guys learn as a result of being on this boat in the middle of the storm? They learn that God can be trusted way, way, way deeper and more intense than they ever imagined. They learn that God is at work in this world and God is powerful in this world. Even the sea and the wind obey him. They never get that experience with Jesus if they don't first buy into what he was selling on the shore. Does that make sense? They never get on the boat if they aren't first willing to follow him wherever he leads them. They never get to experience this. I know this sounds kind of crazy. They never get the opportunity to be scared of the storm, to then be comforted in the storm if they first don't follow Jesus on the boat. So that's why it's so important that we are following him wherever he leads us because we'll never see him do things like this. You say, Justin, is it worth following Jesus into a storm if the result of that storm is you witnessing the power of God in, ama in amazing mighty ways absolutely it's worth it that's why that's why the same Peter that's panicking here says in first Peter that it's a joyful thing to suffer for the glory of God Peter, you were ready to give up on the boat. And Peter says, yeah, I've learned that even in the storms of this life, God is at work. Thank God I was on the boat in the storm so that I could see Jesus calm the waves and the wind. So now when I face the storms of this life and Rome is trying to kill me, I am not afraid. You wonder why we're so afraid of even small things in this world? Because we've never followed Jesus into the challenges that he intends on teaching us something great. What can we learn from this episode? We see how much he was willing to entrust himself into God's hands. Because what was Jesus doing when the storm was brewing? He was in the hindered part of the boat asleep. So Jesus is, again, money where his mouth is. Jesus is under, in the bottom of the boat. So if the boat is flooding, where do you think is going to get flooded first? The part where Jesus was sleeping. So he wasn't just a sacrificial man. He was a man that, that trusted in God's control. He never panicked when things seemed to be out of his control. You hear that? He never panicked when things were out of his control because he was trusting in God's control. You know how you can become, become to a place in life where you never panic? Where you never lo you know, lose your, your, your sense of, of, of trust and confidence? When you've let go of your control. You know what the picture of letting go of your control is? Getting in a boat, getting into the bottom of the boat, going to sleep when a hurricane is brewing. And if anybody knew a hurricane was coming, it was Jesus. Right? The guy who is aware of everything yet he goes to you know have you ever been unable to sleep because you've got too much on your mind and you're afraid you, you know there's a storm coming literally or maybe there's something that could you know maybe you heard a noise and you think i can't go to sleep someone could be outside and i don't blame you for being careful at home right but do you see the correlation there we might we would probably not go to sleep because we're worried that we need to be awake and alert and aware jesus demonstrates faithfulness in god by going to bed in the bottom of the boat in the middle of a storm Meanwhile, the guys on the deck, they start losing their minds as soon as the water begins to fill their open area, which leads them into waking Jesus, who I imagine they found underwater, I don't know, or at least partially underwater, and they ask him the question. According, uh, according to Mark's gospel, it's not here in Matthew, but in Mark's gospel, they ask him the question, Lord, do you not care that we are dying? You can read that in Mark 
in, in the early part, Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 5. But here in Matthew, we just get them saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But, but I want to think about that for a minute. They asked Jesus the question, Lord, do you not care that we are dying? And what is Jesus' response to that question? Why are you afraid? Where is your faith? So they ask, do you not care, God? And Jesus asks, do you not trust God? You see the two different perspectives? God, don't you care? Jesus says, don't you believe? Well, but, but yeah, I, I, I believe, but, but you, you shouldn't have let us get in this mess, Jesus. Notice the way those two questions complement and contrast one another. The, the, they say, Lord, don't you care that we're about to die? And Jesus says, don't you trust me that I came to give you life? Do you not care that we're about to die? Jesus says, don't you trust me that I came to give you true and abundant life? We ask God, don't you care? He asks, don't you trust? Which tells us again, Jesus is leading us to a higher brand of life, a higher plane of existence that we often settle for something much lower. Again, he's not a hypocrite in this instance. He's in the boat under the water. Think about that. He was resting in the stern of the boat being flooded while the guys up top were panicking. Completely opposites, right? What can we learn from Jesus? Sometimes it's good to push ourselves to go where God leads us and do what God tells us even when, especially when we don't feel like it. I know this kind of sounds, again, kind of blunt. If you wait to when, for when you feel like serving God, you'll never do it. You won't. If you wait for when you feel like giving and serving and going and loving, you'll never do it. It's just like when you have to break your will. That's what fasting is. It's breaking your will. Fasting is saying to your flesh, you're not going to win. Fasting is saying to your body, I know you want this, but God... I'm, I'm going to say no to you so that I might discipline my spirit and discipline my soul and get myself aligned with God. So it's good for us to break the will of our flesh so that we might activate the spirit, our sensitivity to him, and our trust in him. Does that make sense? If we don't, if we don't push ourselves, we won't ever follow Jesus out of our comfort zones. And you all, we all know what our comfort zones are. We won't ever go, with, go on the boat with him. Church is a comfort zone in a lot of ways. And it's a good thing that you're here. You could be somewhere else. But Christians, this is, not, this is not the sacrificial place. This is comfort zone for many of us. Jesus is saying, I want to take you out of here on the boat with me to the mission field with me. And that's where the last passage leads us. Verse 28. When he came to the other side of the country of Gergesenes, or the Gadareans, they, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. Suddenly uh, they cried out saying, what have, you to do with, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled and they went into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. 
And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Uh, let me just go ahead and say this before, I, before it leaves my mind. Jesus went to a place that was outright opposed to him ever going there. That's really the world, isn't it? Did we ask for Jesus to come save us? No, we were completely out of a rebellion against God. He came to us anyway. They were asking him to leave after he came. Jesus goes places where people don't want him, but he still goes there because he knows there's people worth saving there. Most of us would be completely out of our element, out of our league in situations like this. So much we could never even imagine a mission trip like this. Mission trips in modern contexts are very, are vacations compared to that. But mission trips are anything that involves going to people, places, and parts of the world where we never imagine ourselves going. That could be across the sea to some place like this, or it could be down the street. There, these will bring us into situations that make us feel in way overwhelmed, but if we've already bought into the sacrifice of following Jesus, we've already suspended our disbelief and trusted in God's plan and got on the boat with him and endured the storm with him, we are primed and ready for encounters and endeavors for God's glory. If we want to see God, make it, God use us to make an impact on our world, to see people literally possessed by demons find freedom and salvation, we've got to value the mission that God is inviting us into. We've got to cherish this opportunity above everything else, which means we've got to push ourselves and step out on faith more and more and more. I, I think it's a good thing that we ask ourselves. We should make goals for ourselves every single week. How can I step out on faith more this week? How can I push myself out of my comfort zone more this week? And it, it takes baby steps. Listen, when you, when, if you're trying to diet, if you're trying to quit eating something or quit drinking something, you, you know it takes a little, you have to kind of wean yourself off of it because you can't, if you just quit it all of a sudden, your body's going to completely collapse. But when you're trying to lose weight or you're trying to be healthier, you've got to make little chips at, chip away at it a little bit at a time. And, and church, again, back to that breaking our will, back to that getting ourselves sensitive to God, we've got to set goals. How can I push myself to step out on faith? Because here's the thing. If we don't constantly push ourselves to step out on faith, it's why I talked a couple weeks ago about giving. People ask me, hey, how much do you give? I give until it hurts. Uh, and, and that's way past 10. That's way past the percentages that we put on it in our safe comfort zones. Go a little bit farther and a little bit farther and a little bit farther. You push yourself out of your comfort zone. And if you find yourself doing what you do for God easily without any conviction or any discomfort, then yet tells me that you have let your flesh take over your spirit. I know that's a little bit, uh, hey, Justin, has it got to be that extreme? I think it does. If we want to see the Spirit of God take over our lives, we've got to push ourselves a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, so that, so that we see God take us to places like this. We'll never get to a place like they were on the mission field if we don't push ourselves a little bit more every single week, every single day. Jesus went wherever God called him to go. He went face to face with whomever God called him to. And again, all this backs up and depends on the previous decisions. We'll never know what God can do with us and through us if we don't first believe it's greater than any alternative path we can take. We'll never know. You know the reason why, back to the subject of diet, you know the reason why most people quit their diets or their exercise routine? is because in the moment when you're deciding if you're going to do it today, you think, you know what, I'd be happier if I just didn't walk or didn't run, or if I, I'd be happier if I just ate the junk. And in that instant, we choose a different path. 
But we'll never know what God can do through us if we don't first believe that what he has for us is greater than any alternative we could settle for. God can use us to bring salvation to people who are considered without hope. These demons were fiercely in control of these people. And the same is true in our world today. People are hurting and they need a church that is willing and ready to do what Jesus did. These demons were literally preventing anybody from passing this way until Jesus came their way. So what will it be from us? Will we heed the call over our lives? Will we follow Jesus onto the boat? Will we go with him on the mission field to Lord knows where and to who ever? It all comes down to our heart's greatest desire. And to wrap up, flip over a page to the end of Matthew 9 and listen to how Jesus kind of sets this up for us to make us to have this final invitation. Verse 35 through 38, Then Jesus went out through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching in the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness, every disease among the people. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Then having said to the disciples, The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus sees a lost world, and what is his, what is his criticism? There just isn't enough people doing something about it. And then he asks us to pray a prayer. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into the harvest. So Jesus says, you see all these lost people? You see, all, you see this world that's hurting and broken and, and messed up and broken in every way possible? You see that world? Let's pray for God to send some laborers into that field. At that moment, Peter and Andrew and John and James, they're sitting back thinking, whew, thought he was going to send us. You know what happens in the very next chapter? Jesus says, okay, thank you for praying. Guess who God is going to send into the harvest? You all. God answers your prayer immediately on this request. God, would you send laborers into the field? And Jesus says, God has already answered our prayer. And they're like, Who, who's he going to send? Y'all. You think that was a trick question? <laughs> I just think it's trying to get our attention, isn't it? You know what the very next chapter is all about? Jesus sends these men that just prayed the prayer. As in, you know who he's sending right here, right now? You know who he's saying Go and make a difference in the world? Well, go look in the mirror. And that'll tell you who. Go look in the mirror and go and do what Jesus did. And we know what Jesus did, don't we? He went wherever God sent him. He put himself in discomforting situations, even when it seemed like a little bit out, out of line, out of, out, of, out of mind situations. And God used him tremendously to save the most reprobate of people. If that's what Jesus did, and our question is what would Jesus do if he were us? I think we know. I think we know. So let's make it our prayer that God would raise us up and send us just like he sent them. And let's follow the footsteps that Jesus has left for us. Church, thank you all for hearing this word tonight. Thank you for being part of our church this evening. I'm going to pray for us. And again, please join us out in the fellowship hall for some fellowship um, and enjoy each other's company for just a little bit. Let me pray for you. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your graciousness that you've shared with us tonight. Thank you for the challenge over us. Uh, thank you for opening our eyes and, and opening our ears and, and hopefully opening our hearts that we might would receive from you uh, and we might would understand just how awesome an opportunity we have been given to be a part of something much more beyond what we could ever deserve. Father, be with us as we enjoy each other's company this evening. Be with each and every one that's been here tonight. Lord, for any requests they may have as they turn them over to you, Lord, would you use them to go and be a blessing to those that are in need. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.